1: post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
2: So uh, it it really breaks my heart what you just told me. I I didn't know that. Um, But you can see I do think that the atmosphere towards Muslims has changed.
3: I think it is fair to say Muslims in Britain feel, when it comes to the political and journalistic class, we have few friends. Most politicians, even those who are elected in large Muslim areas, are unwilling to act with fairness or represent our concerns. Instead, this establishment often foments naked animosity towards our faith and religious symbols, and contributes to a hostile environment. The only consolation, we tell ourselves, is that things are worse in Europe. Yet we remain on edge, waiting for the next faux outrage that yet again maligns our community. My guest today, the journalist Peter Oborn, stands out as one of the few defenders of our community in the mainstream press. Over the past two decades, he has worked tirelessly to speak truth to power. He is currently a writer for the Middle East Eye and was named British Press Awards Columnist of the Year in 2013. His latest book is The Fate of Abraham, Why the West is Wrong About Islam, which takes a look at the often opaque world of the Islamophobia industry. Importantly, Oborn is a Conservative and until 2019 was a member of the Conservative Party until he resigned in disgust at the Boris Johnson leadership. I found this interview particularly fascinating. Peter provides an insider's perspective of how Islam has been deliberately fashioned to be the enemy within. I suspect many of you will find his analysis explains your lived experience since 9-11. Our conversation takes us to British conservatism, King Charles' comments on Islam, and how many young Muslims are looking to leave the UK – a trend I suspect that will only intensify over the coming decade. I am your host, Mohammed Jalal, and this is the Thinking Muslim podcast. Please do remember to subscribe on your favourite podcast app, as well as on our YouTube channel. And do remember to leave a review. This helps us reach more listeners. Peter Oban, thank you for coming to uh, my show, The Thinking Muslim. It's uh, it's great to have you here with us.
2: Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me.
3: Well, Peter, I mean, I, I've I've been looking forward to this discussion because I think you are a rare, maybe even unique example of a journalist in the mainstream media who has consistently called out politicians and politi- and the political establishment on their positions towards Muslims and Islam. I want to explore the growing Islamophobia in Britain and Europe, and I also want to take a look at the role of the British Conservative Party and the underlying motivations and ideologies of this mod- of the modern party. You recently published a book, The Fate of Abraham, uh, Why the West is Wrong About Islam. So let's maybe start here. What is it that the West gets wrong about the religion of Islam?
2: The West has... Got Islam wrong systematically. I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm sure Islam is, or Muslims, to say perhaps more properly, has has been wrong about the West as well. But you can trace a set of bogus, bigoted, and violent ideas relating to Islam right from, you know, the Crusades, Pope Urban the Second, sort of you know, kind of Islamo- Islamophobic sort of nonsense. Uh, in the 11th century, right up to you know the neo-conservative um, tracts emerging from uh, Washington in the um, end of the night, end of the 20th and start of the 21st century, is it, a very consistent the same tropes, the same quite blinkered misunderstanding uh, of the teachings of the Prophet and the and the nature of Islam.
3: Is it a misunderstanding? of Islam, and when we think about the Crusades and the way Islam was characterised and and the more recent uh, neoconservative movement, can we put that down to ignorance, misunderstanding, or is there a a willful attitude to present Islam in uh, in the most extreme terms?
2: Um, I would say that uh, when it comes to sophisticated people who ought to know uh, better, for instance, the United States um, intelligence operatives, politicians, academics, uh, and so forth. The same applies in Britain as well. That it has to be regarded as a willful issue because all of the facts are available. And I one of one of the things I do in this uh, book is to show how uh, intellectuals and politicians and uh, media set about constructing a false discourse or a discourse about Muslims and about Islam in the West in the wake of 9-11, which was based on a series of uh, deliberate misapprehensions about the teaching uh, of the Prophet.
3: In your book, you make reference to a secretive Home Office unit that draws on Cold War methods, along with a network of influential think tanks, some drawing on dubious American funding. tell me about this network of Islamophobia you uncovered.
2: I really looked very hard at the response in Western capitals to 911. 9/11. 9/11 was a blessing uh, for the for, for particularly for the United States, I think in the sense that you can shape sh- you can show how there is a a kind of sympathy or common set of misapprehensions, Almost as if Al-Qaeda and the neocons kind of needed each other. They they show the same um, false apprehension or false understanding of Islam as a violent uh, religion. They show the same uh, readiness to embrace violence. And they show the same hostility to democratic or representative institutions and the rule of law. And they sort of mirror each other, uh, uh, you know, six, you know, on either side of the Atlantic or 6,000 miles away in Afghanistan and New York. Um, and actually, Islam, or that wishes to say nine eleven, came to the rescue of the United States, which had really been bereft after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, in in uh, 1990, uh, because they needed an enemy, uh, and 9/11 was curiously foreshadowed by the Huntington uh, thesis about clash of civilizations, in which he um, said that Islam had bloody borders and predicted uh, predicted a great a set of um, how should one say wars or struggles against between Islam and the West representing two countervailing opposite forces. And of course, 9-11 came along and gave every excuse for the uh, United States to go to war. Now, the central argument of my book actually is that, as I think most people who have an understanding of this subject, is that actually there's much more in common between the three great monotheistic religions than we have um, against each other. That was not the analysis taken by the uh, think tanks and the politicians uh, and the officials and the media in the West. They set out to categorise, stigmatise and turn uh, Islam in the West into the enemy within. Now this was, they very self-consciously modeled themselves and they went back to the early years after 1945 and the emergence of the uh, Cold War when Western intellectuals and policy makers set out a structure which in order to deal with what was a real menace, the menace of Soviet communism, and they did that by say, creating fake civil society movements and organizations, magazines, media, which, while appearing to be uh, socialist or pro on the left, were actually run by um, a- a- organs of the CIA or MI6 in Britain. Um, and they created, they divided between good communists, or, i.e. communists who were sympathetic to um, to the United States and bad communists who had to be kind of combated Um It led to this sort of a series of neuroses, uh, of which the most uh, notorious, of course, is McCarthyism, where, uh, you know, any film producer or uh, politician in the United States who'd had any kind of sympathy on the left was stigmatized and persecuted. uh, And in some many cases, driven out of the United States um, by by the McCarthyites.
3: We know that there is now a state and a threat to or a challenge to America that comes from a state, China, rather than from non-state actors like al-Qaeda or ISIS or a perceived threat from Islam. I mean, in your reading, do you think these think tanks and policy units have now moved beyond Islam, albeit with maybe a residue of Islamophobia persisting?
2: I think uh, that's true uh, in the United States. And in fact, it was really interesting. About a year or maybe two years ago, the Henry Jackson Society, which was a keen um, Islamophobic organisation, suddenly started to publish a series of tracts and um, uh, sort of policy position papers uh, denouncing China and adv- identifying China as the new as the new enemy, which um, took a lot of pressure. Of, of muslims on the other hand in europe uh where europe has been obliged to following follow that agenda but, but nevertheless the pressure on muslims is is increasing still I th- it may be more relaxed in the united states we're seeing the emergence of quite some very attractive muslim politicians um but in the states and joe biden is is uh is, is not much less inflammatory than Trump, but on the other hand, uh, in the in Europe, I, I think the thing is getting darker and darker. You just think of the French elections. Macron has adopted the rhetoric rhetoric of the far right and the policies. Um, in Britain, I see, um, Truss uh, as pushing through a whole series of almost sort of securitizing uh, Islam or Muslims in a way which intensifies what was already the situation um and we see uh the think tanks policy exchange putting out position papers a new security architecture um an intensification of the prevent strategy and so in europe i i'm um i'm very very um gloomy at the moment
3: and why do you think that is is it uh, just narrow electoral advantage. Islam is is easy to to win votes off.
2: Part of that is true. The uh, part of the strategy of the uh, conservative government, and I, I don't. Re- it is not conservative. Remember, in a traditional way, it's not. It's it's actually a far right government which has got the name conservative. It's actually in many ways a neocon government, or, or a radical right government. The the traditional conservatives have been, you know, thinking of people like Ken Clark, the former chancellor, uh, Dominic Grieve, the former attorney general, and people like that, they've been driven out of the party. And so it's been captured by, uh, uh, by the far right and, um, or the extreme right, and that has consequences. They are determined to wage a series of culture wars. Um, and we're already seeing this with the uh, so-called War on Woke, um, which is really, again, inventing a series of imaginary uh, enemies. Um, uh, But one of those wars is is too tempting for them, I think, is that that war on um, what you might say politically active Muslims, um, people who take uh, Islam seriously, Who've tried to bring it into public life, and I think what you're, I think what you can see, and there's been a lot of, been several articles by people connected to Policy Exchange, David Cameron being the most, the former Prime Minister being the most uh, egregious in a piece in the in the in the Times, uh, people connected with the Henry Jackson Society have been have been advocating um, um, a, a new regime towards Muslims, and of course we have, we're awaiting the cross. Uh, review long delayed um and we're, of, of the prevent strategy and he's not going to re- review it in the sense that you know you, he's addressing its faults so he seems to, he seems to have made claim that he's just making it worse um and that's significant and troubling
3: you talk about an attempt to conflate uh, innocuous conservative islamic practice with extremism how is this done and what lies behind This approach,
2: yeah, I have a chapter or two on this subject. It's very insidious, and it involves the creation of a new kind of public language or discourse about Muslims. uh, I trace the invention or the reclassification or reinvention of certain words, like um, one of them is extremism, which is applied to uh, to, uh, essentially to Muslims who show. Muslim who 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 celebrate Muslim characteristics. I you know, um, uh, use this very dangerous, I think dangerous, anti-democratic word um, or phrase. I should say non-violent extremism. Now we can all agree that violent extremism, i.e., um, blowing people up, shooting them, uh, um, uh, terrorism, is is terrible. Uh, everybody has a common duty to. To, to combat that and denounce it but non-violent extremism identifies language or clothing um or just practice religious practices which while not violent are somehow unacceptable it's a, so you're they're bringing in uh, a thought crime uh and or or another way of putting it which is i think which i'm still brooding on is that they are Attacking religious liberty. I mean, Muslims have a. All people. I'm not talking about Muslims. Any. We all have a, a right to celebrate our religious or non-religious beliefs. You know, I'm an Anglican. You know, we go to church. We, we. There are certain. Uh, you know, we put on robes. We. Um, we do all, You know, we have all kinds of traditions which are bound up with the state. Catholics. Uh, you know, there's no Catholic priests who are women. By the way. You don't read about that because nobody really wants to, no politician ever wants to offend the Catholic vote, but you can go after Muslims who, who um, have mores or customs which do not fit well with modern secular liberal society. They're a very safe uh, target. So the c- concept of nonviolent extremism has been invented um, then you have the concept of radicalization really interests me a you know a, a, a modern white Western politician who wants to make herself or himself appear interesting so I'm a radical uh, and that uh, and uh, but on the other hand if you, a, a radical Muslim is going to be put on a program of uh, of, of surveillance and, and it may be criminalized likewise if you want to denounce a uh, modern a white, uh, politician you say oh these these people are he's he or she is moderate or rather a moderate fellow um whereas uh, if you want to praise uh, within the public domain a, a muslim you call them moderate because the moderate muslims are the good ones uh, and, and this um double standards in public discourse um is a way of disenfranchising millions of our fellow citizens you also feel that they've also been muslims politically active muslims have also been cancelled long before the word cancel culture was invented i go into this these secret lists which are, uh, ex- have existed in whitehall um to uh, to to uh, uh, to keep out certain very very reasonable and and public-spirited figures from the public debate. They still won't talk to a Muslim Council of Britain. Um, MEND, you know, which is a civil society organisation, if there ever was one, Uh, that's constantly under attack from from Whitehall. Um, I I look into the setting up of organisations on the model of the Cold War when they were fighting communism, which are actually uh, run or funded or authorised by the state, but masquerade as civil society organizations uh, and so on and that is and that's sh- that is part of to use a phrase actually adopted by saeed Avasti, who's still a member of the conservative party i think and was um and had to leave the conservative party, well left in protest against uh the the, 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 the attitude of the british go- uh, government towards gaza in 2014 called the enemy within
3: How much of this is less political and more part of a broader, I don't know, project of liberalism to chasten religion? I mean, Islam is taken probably, and I may be wrong here, uh, Peter, but it's um, Muslims are are far more strict in their adherence to the faith uh, over probably your average Anglican is.
2: There's no question that um, secular liberalism or coercive liberalism one might call it uh sees islam as a target and this explains one of the difficulties which uh muslims have in uh britain today you you know on the, right, the far right or even the you know the moderate right uh, to use the moderate the far the conservative right is often hostile to islam as a proxy for racism because they're so many muslims in britain are immigrants or have brown skins and because racism is illegal anti black or, uh, or or anti asian racism is actually against the law islamophobia is it becomes a proxy attacks on muslims become a proxy and that is uh, on the the bigotry of the far far right now uh, at the same time the, the muslims in britain have been fighting a on another front, they're not just uh, open to attack by the conservative uh, wings, by certain branches of conservatism, you also have progressive attacks. I mean, Christopher Hitchens was the commander-in-chief, as it were. Uh, you know, he said it got it going with his denunciations of uh, of Muslims, and um, that was then followed by um, a string of others. I mean, The Guardian, The Observer, you know, papers which you would have expected to have stood up for minorities actually have tended to join in um, these criticisms. Um, with these, with And I've studied this. I've written a long study of the, tro- the press reporting of the Trojan Horse Affair, for instance, which, as you probably know, is a complete fabrication start to finish. But what was interesting, you don't just get the Murdoch Press, the Associated Newspapers, the Telegraph. You also get the Guardian, Stroke Observer, on the side of the of a, of a state attacked, a state attack on a minority group on Muslims in East Birmingham, and that's and there's virtually nobody who will stand up for them. Um, and when the New York Times, shamingly for the British press, was the first attempt to have a look at what was going on, of course they were denounced left, right, and centre. Most of all by the Observer, and. Um, i find that and, and that is a problem which uh, and, and it is i think that some uh, secularists uh, are against all all religions but the easiest target as where they're most likely to have allies but the easiest target is in the on the liberal is 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 islam even though they're against all religions and they'd love to have a bash at catholicism too um or hindu is or the whole lot because they and that, I think, is quite authoritarian, ultimately, it's um, and it's certainly unconservative. I want you to
3: elaborate on uh, what you just said there about uh, the journalistic class and how it often echoes the talking points of the political establishment. I mean, you used to be a journalist for the Daily Telegraph until you resigned. Uh, and in many ways, that it's a mouthpiece for the conservative establishment. How endemic is Islamophobia in journalism today? And how does it work? I mean, does it come from above an editorial line or is it woven into the culture of most uh, mainstream uh, uh, organisations? Uh,
2: the answer to that is both. And so if you look at the most powerful media magnate in the Western world by far, Rupert Murdoch, um, he, he I think, is if you look at his record, has made he himself has made his Islamophobic comments he's made his views known and remember he doesn't just um, control the uh, you know the times which is notoriously uh, he fabricates regularly fabricates stories about Muslims as well as the sort of denunciations of people like Melanie Phillips but also the sun Sunday times led the way very largely on the uh, Trojan horse affair led the way uh, on the um, weaponization of grooming gangs against Muslims, I mean the, that was terrible reporting, and lots of other cases. Uh, and of course, Mr. Murdoch owns Fox News, um, which is a sort of deranged organization with a nightmare Islamophobic agenda in the United States. So that comes from the, that clearly comes from the top, um, but I think it's also a culture whereby it's. Extremely um, easy uh, to sell a story to a paper, and that's what you're doing as a reporter. You need to get a byline, and if it's one which uh, pillories Muslims so much, the better. So it's there is a news desk culture whereby mm-hmm. you can you can plant those stories much more easily. Whereas um, it's much more difficult to sell a story which puts Muslims not impossible, but very difficult to sell a story to a news desk which puts Muslims in a, a positive light. Equally, they won't report, they won't correct false stories. I mean, Trojan Horse, a classic case in point when the case against the teachers uh, fell, that collapsed. Um, you know, that was scarcely reported uh, when the various reports came out, which showed there hadn't been a conspiracy, ignored very largely. Uh, and so it's a very one-sided, uh, and I've spent... <laughs> I've spent about much quite a significant amount of time over the last twenty years, and it goes into my book exposing those false stories.
3: You've made reference there to the Trojan Horse affair, but I mean, one can read that as a, a multi-layered collusion: um, the judiciary, Ofsted, independent layers of, of the British establishment, in a sense, colluded yeah. to deny a voice for these teachers and for those who who were calling out this letter to be to be a fake i mean you know is it as as pervasive as that
2: you going through that i mean ofsted was just pathetic and so that a few year, months before the attack was uh was launched on trojan horse you know the uh, ofsted had given a glowing reviews to the trojan the so-called trojan Horse schools yeah and uh, and, and it changes on it, it changes it on a sixpence, um, and it was clearly but that the, the judgment one must make without having looked at the case of Austin really carefully is that they came under political pressure and they gave in. Um, the judiciary, well, at least the tribunal collapsed. I mean, there was um, uh, uh, there was uh, so I, I I think in the end. It's hard to say the rule of law failed. It seems to have uh, eventually uh, worked. I do think one thing that greatly annoys me about it is the British media was a disaster. I mean, John John Homewood uh, wrote a book quite shortly after the Trojan horse affair blew up, which proved beyond any question of doubt that the whole thing was a fabrication, and I find it difficult, but it's true. Not one review of that book appeared in a British newspaper, a mainstream British newspaper. He's—I I think I'm right in saying—you might have to check with him. He's never been invited on the BBC. One of the problems is the BBC is up to its neck in this. Uh, the the BBC has approached has the corrections program which looks at the whole idea is to look at false media narratives and expose them uh, in the when the corrections program came to look at trojan horse a they didn't interview john homewood professor Homewood, and b they they re they, they reinforced some of the uh, islamophobic narratives they picked up some piece of, of what appears to be a piece of hearsay which was never substantiated put into the Telegraph by uh, Andrew Gilligan, who is one of the most, who's published a number of stories he's had to retract about Muslims. And they actually put it back into the public domain. Um, The corrections did with no, I, I wrote to the BBC and asked them to explain what was going on and got a completely unsatisfactory answer. Uh, and so it's not simply the the militant right, what you might call the militant Islamophobic right wing press. You have the, um, the, the the progressive press and you have mainstream media organisations uh, like, uh, above all, uh, the BBC, all embarked <laughs> on a common enterprise to misrepresent British Muslims.
3: And you were very critical, I remember, of Tony Blair especially over the Iraq war and and I think you wrote a book at the time about political lying and 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 the way by which the uh, the new political class uh, actively lied as as a means to uh, to misrepresent its its agenda in in the public eye i mean how did the iraq war inform your thinking about how the muslim community or or at least islam internationally was treated uh, by the political and journalistic establishments
2: um for me for me personally um the Iraq war was a, a a career turning point and a personal turning point because i had up to that moment i was a very i am a, i would still define myself as a burkean conservative uh, and actually much of my criticism um of the current government and of the sometimes of the Labour positions comes as a, from a b- position of Burkean conservatism, a defence of, uh, of religious liberty, uh, a, 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 a sort of a defence of multiculturalism, uh, an understanding that you don't have to enforce as the French Revolution, which Burke did, which Burke hated so much and predicted um, would go wrong, um, a, a, a kind of coercive single view on any matter um, sort of a, a kind of tolerance, but allowed, which I think we are losing. But what went wrong in the in the well, well I, when I came to examine the Iraq War, what you saw there was a, a, a sort of dogmatic liberalism, a refusal to understand other points of view, and among the promoters of the Gulf of the Iraq invasion, a kind of often a sort of Empty, ignorant, bigoted contempt for not just for Islam, but for brown people, for foreign, you know, for what other countries and the way they choose to run themselves. And it set me on, and I want, and the British state had been complicit in this. I find it deeply, I find it very hard to believe that the British intelligence services have been party to fabricating false information about weapons of mass destruction to justify what was an illegal war. And after that, I, I, having been a pretty loyal, a loyal to British government's conservative journalists, uh, I slowly set out on a different uh, personal direction. And that w- is what has led, uh, led to, well, it led, eventually led to the, my, the book I published this year. I mean, it was why I set about making it. I sort of did it quite consciously. I've I've got to I've got to re-examine everything, I believe.
3: But let's turn to the conservative party and conservative ideology. Now, are you at risk of romanticizing uh, past conservative thinking? Um, I mean, the party, at least in my reading, has always been quite reluctant to embrace multiculturalism and traditional conservatism believes in monocultural societies as as a form of order. Uh, there is a strong strain of empire thinking within traditional conservatism. I mean, Burke was a was an imperialist. Um, uh, even there's uh, a strain of cultural and possibly even ethnic superiority in in early conservative thinking. And how much of this is is embedded or meshed into uh, the frame of thinking of of conservatism, regardless of its strand if it's neoconservatism or, or the more traditional one nation style conservatives
2: I agree with some of what you've just said but not all of it above all what you, you're neoconservatism is not the same as traditional conservatism uh, traditional conservatism as defined by Burke and re-articulated by Oakeshott who was the primary the most distinguished conservative thinker quite difficult to read in some parts uh, uh, is it, it, not, re- not as you describe it. It, it. Its key insight is that great projects, let's say the Iraq war, are dangerous because of you can't predict or the French Revolution are dangerous because you can't predict however virtuous your motives in going in and doing this overthrowing the King of France or deposing Saddam Hussein. Uh, you can't predict the consequences. It's a sort of humility Almost a religious sense that only God or Allah knows, and if you, and therefore, since you haven't got the knowledge or wisdom to predict the uh, the consequences of how of great public acts, the best you can do is to observe due process, minor things like being courteous to your to your friends, looking after. The people around you who are sick or poor, um, telling the truth. You can make sure that you yourself tells the truth. Whereas the left this is a critique of the progressive left that the, the progressive left see, sees. And hence Iraq. Left, Iraq was a left wing project, really. Uh, and you can you have you somehow the, it, the man has got such virtue and wisdom that he can embark on a great project and turn Iraq, which is oppressed by uh, this villainous uh, uh, authoritarian figure, dictator Saddam, and turn it into a benign dem- democratic society. That, but and, and because that vision is so virtuous, you are unjustified to make it happen in lying, cheating, Torturing, killing, etc., because the end justifies the means, and that's a left-wing analysis. The, Tory, the right-wing analysis is the opposite. That's one answer to your question. Or the, I say right-wing, the conservative analysis. The other answer is is much is a much more complicated answer to the conservatives' association with imperialism, which of course exists, and of course there were terrible crimes committed under imperialism it does not empire is the opposite in many ways of nationalism there's a really good essay published two months ago in a conservative website i don't know if you've come across it my i don't know who i never met him before chanjil rashid Uh, he um he he, he 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 makes this rather brilliant point to my way of thinking That the the late queen and her conceptions of empire and later commonwealth were the opposite of nationalism and actually the queen was the the british monarchy was the great prophylactic against enoch powell's vein of english nationalism and this was because uh, and there was a kind of very generous inclusivity about empire this doesn't just apply to the british empire it would also apply to the ottoman empire the ability the the wish and the desire to and the acceptance of minorities of different religions races all living on an equal basis hence the british nationality act of 1948 which gave commonwealth members the equal rights of British citizens, as British as British citizens, we do have an ethno-nationalist, something quite close and dangerously close to a a, a nationalist government now in Britain under Truss, which is why she and Johnson were so, although they pretended to be fond of the Queen, uh, Johnson lied to the Queen, remember, um, and Truss is now trying to exploit the monarchy, the new king, by going on his tour of the nations with him and so on, weaponizing the monarchy for political purposes. It won't survive if, they, if that is allowed to happen. Is that a coherent answer, I hope?
3: It's a very coherent answer, yes. And and I am interested in, in how you represent Liz Truss. I know Boris Johnson cynically used Islam and Muslims as a means to stoke his culture wars. But you wrote recently in in your Middle East eye piece that trust presides over a virulently islamophobic party and contributes uh, to that effort. I mean how much do you believe she has bought into this narrative? or is this a, a phase that the party will would inevitably move beyond now that they've seen the back of Boris Johnson or have they seen the back of Boris Johnson? That's another question.
2: I think we can be certain that trust is herself entirely empty right she, she she is uh yes she has been an anti monarchist now she claims to be a monarchist she was pro european now she's anti european she was um the dem now she's tory what you see here is a not unusual is a purely a pure opportunist uh, and she's hiked us in order to become tory leader she has formed this and i don't know how where you would be this very dark deal with the European Reform Group, it's called, or is it the European Research Group, the ERG, a, a, a militant group of far right Tory backbenchers. Um, and she she went to meet them uh, and she convinced them that she offered uh, the best hope for the uh, for their agenda. And that's how she became won the Tory leadership, and that's how she became. Uh, prime minister so she's hoiked herself into the, a very uh, far right and i think I, I use people might criticize that term far right but you, the conservative party has become something else it is not the pragmatic uh, uh british conservative party which we which governed britain in many ways for 200 years it's become a narrow factional english party hostile to the idea of britain it may be that she can mutate. Since she is ideologically ult- ultimately empty, she may conclude that she, the way she can win the next election is by abandoning these people who put her in and, and returning to a more expansive version of Britishness, which uh, traditionally the Conservative Party has represented. I, of course, hope that she will uh, do that. Nationalism, historically... Is the enemy of minorities. It, it tends to do so. There are terrible examples. It's the, the the generous the generosity of a British identity was very friendly towards immigrant groups, of whom the largest group in this country is Muslims. All all immigrant groups, the Queen welcomed. Hence, I think she did that meeting with Paddington Bear, you know. Mm-hmm it makes me cry when i think of it even let alone watch it you know there's there she is welcoming this pet migrant this penniless migrant who comes to britain uh, 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 and uh, and you know he says thank you mom for everything i mean it's very special that moment and she and that don't there was a the queen was magnificent she was very skillful she was a great woman she knew how to communicate messages very softly and not intervene in politics. But what that said, the British monarchy uh, welcomes migrants, refugees.
3: I would like to talk about the British monarchy, but before I do, um, just on the subject of trust and the current Conservative Party, I mean, there is a paradox here, and the the current contemporary Conservative Party is the most diverse party, probably, in British politics. Um the four major or great offices of state are occupied by non-white men the women the last case, le- yeah. We- yeah. exactly the last leadership campaign was conspicuous i think in the sheer number of non-white candidates uh, doesn't this reflect a more tolerant conservative party in your eyes
2: um it's a very complicated question because let's look at the agenda of the conservative party over the, once the royal funeral is over The first big thing is Rwanda. That, it sounds, will be intensified.
3: This is the Home Good. Office policy of uh, sending uh, asylum seekers uh, to process their claims in Rwanda.
2: Yeah, it looks like it's an illegal policy. It's right. against the... Um, uh, now, in order to make that, it, it looks very much under human rights law, that policy to send the uh, uh, refugees, perhaps is a better way, to uh, to Rwanda to be processed in in camps? I don't know, um, is, is contrary to the European Court, the, the, the um, Constitution of the Human Rights Act, Convention, the European the Convention Rights, of Human yeah. Rights. So we'd have to, to do it, we'd have to pull out of the European Convention of Human Rights, which was set up in the immediate aftermath of World War II, as we learnt the lessons, and we helped to draft it we learned the um, we we learnt about fascism. It it protects it it it's a guard against torture. It protects actually private property, a conservative idea. It can it protects uh, liberty. Meanwhile, the government is under according to I think a very important article in the Guardian this week. It's being accused of having two categories of of, of citizenship: one for white Britons, you might say, one for people who have come in more recently. Very, very um, powerful allegations, which I haven't fully studied, but you can see there's an attack on British citizenship for all. Then we have um, uh, the short-cost report, which I talked about earlier, into Muslims and the intensific- what looks like being the intensification of a programme of surveillance of Muslim citizens and so forth. Now, this is the most right-wing government Britain has probably ever had. Now we, uh, and it's the most hostile to immigrants. I mean, and it's this has been going on for some time, certainly since Boris Johnson became prime minister. And it is true, and it's something we, of course, should welcome that we have uh, a, the most diverse uh, cabinet in history, as you say, with three of the four offices of spe- state um, all being non white. But I have to say that. I listen, I've listened and watched the rhetoric of particularly Braverman in which she very explicitly says that majority, that democracy trumps rights.
3: So this is Suella Braverman, who is the new Home Secretary of Indian Origin.
2: The will of the majority is more important than the rights of the minority. That is quite explicitly what she says.
3: There was an, an announcement made a couple of days ago. I, I read that the government is no longer going to pursue its plans to uh, to reverse or to remove uh, the Human Rights Act. And Dominic Raab, who who flirted with the idea of leaving the European Convention on Human Rights, I think that's now the thing of the past. The past. No,
2: no, no. I'm that's much too optimistic. A really? proposal of a Bill of Rights. Yeah. Um of amending uh to, to, to sort of amend the human rights act they have dropped that yes but if they're going to go ahead with rwanda they're going i think they may attack the whole of the human rights really? act
3: well wow.
2: yeah no i will not nearly they can't do rwanda right without moving out of the echr now it is a it'll be a moment but at the, uh, don't you're you're over interpreting really? Yeah. In my opinion, yeah. it's only an opinion. But then,
3: how much of how much of the Rwanda policy was was really for, for for, for the public, for uh, for journalists, and and less about the actual policy of moving, removing migrants to 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 be processed in Rwanda? Well, it, was,
2: it wasn't just for, it wasn't for journalists at all. It was for uh, it was aimed at uh, conservative voters who don't like immigrants. sorry let's be absolutely don't like refugees I mean the people who would have voted for Nigel Farage who's running oh no 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 that's what that I mean that was clearly who that. you know journalists obviously are needed as mediators in order to pass on the the welcome news (laughs) that uh, Britons are going to be stripped of their rights but um, (laughs) this is a frightening government now I, I do think that we let's see how Liz Truss Emerges from the next uh, couple of weeks because it will have been a learning process for her. Maybe the Queen gave her some words of advice before she died two days later. She may well have dropped some pearls of wisdom in her year. But um, as as things stand, this is a terrifying government, and I, and it's terrifying in particular to minority groups. If you're a member of the white majority, you're probably all right. I don't criticise Suela Braverman. I welcome the fact that somebody of a recent, I think it's first, she's a second generation immigrant. She has risen to the um, eminence of being at the Home Office. But I think her policies are disgusting. Un-British above all they nationalistic policies which target vulnerable people. And that is the most un-British thing you can imagine. It's disgusting. It's a betrayal of everything we stand for as a country. It's a betrayal of those who fought Nazism in, in, in World War II. It's a betrayal of the Conservative Party. She should be utterly ashamed of herself.
3: So, so, Peter, do you think then that the Conservative Party now has irreparably moved beyond your type of conservatism? I mean, we're Rory Stewart and... Ken Clark and Dominic Eve and, and Hammond and, and others now out of the party that lost the whip back in 2019. And the party has almost been purged of its one nation and traditional members. And it, it, it seems now to have a, a momentum in favour of what you would call a neoconservative strand. I mean, where, where do we now see a home for your type of conservative ideas, Peter?
2: I think that I think um, the current We've had it with the current Conservative Party. The best hope is that it's voted out of office. It is heading off in the direction of, well, it is waging a war against um, the rule of law. That's what it's doing. Uh, People throw around the word fascism. I I think that's previous. But what it is doing is attacking uh, the institutions of the British state, and, and and waging and hostile to the rule of law now that is really um not those are not conservative conservative ideas at all um they have to be fought politically uh, the only party which can get rid of them uh, is Keir starmer it's labor i have all sorts of reservations about starmer but i you, you you've got a in this, in these very very dangerous circumstances, uh, I mm. think you'd have to support uh, Starmer, who is not nearly outspoken mm. enough on these issues. By the way. Well, let's let's move on and talk about your thoughts
3: on on King Charles. Um, you recently wrote a piece with my friend Imran Muller, um, uh, and you argued that he is the most Islamophile King Britain has er- probably ever seen. Uh, citing his very positive remarks and sympathetic remarks towards islam tell me more about king charles and his his perspectives on islam and and whether you feel uh, this will impact uh, the current conservative policy towards islam
2: i must say uh, imran mullah was um it was his idea that piece and um mm-hmm. i think it's i was it illuminated me enormously trying to Write it because it it showed how long standing the prince of the Prince of Wales now King interest in Islam was, um, and how real actually. Uh, Marine Khan, uh, in response to the piece, who's the Financial Times economics uh, correspondent. Recalled he went to her university ten years ago, and it became clear to her that he knew. In her words, far more about Sufism. I it's not just a public show, far more about Sufism than she did. So it's not it, it is a real, real, intense engagement with um all kinds of strands of, of Islam. Obviously, he's traveled widely and been criticized for it across the Gulf, but he's also engaged engaged with Sufism, traditionalism, um, and it's part of and he and he defends Islam as being part of the uh, the British tradition, and not as the current government does uh, with these Constantly, uh, invidiously marginalising uh, our Muslim citizens. So he he it is knowledge and his sympathy which sets him sets him off. Uh, sets really not doesn't doesn't uh, differentiate him from his late mother. Although I don't think she ever. Um, you never know, got interested. She was more interested in horses, you know, whereas I think that girls had a genuine intellectual interest in Islam. But it it, it is remarkable, therefore, that we have a a, a king who who comes into do um, kings enter uh, office? What do they do? Who uh, ascends the throne <laughs> with with that kind of background?
3: I wonder. I mean, certainly, there's there's been a uh, you know a lot of discussion in the Muslim community about King Charles, and there've been a number of videos. And your article has been doing the rounds on WhatsApp I mean, in various groups. So that that's uh, that's really positive. But can I can I suggest that maybe I mean I, I suspect you know King Charles does have a sincere uh, approach towards Islam, and it's a long-standing you know um, reading of 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 Islam and religion in in general but are we in danger of decontextualizing uh, his otherwise positive comments i mean since the arab spring began in 2011 he's held something like 95 meetings with eight pretty repressive arab monarchies and has played a key role in promoting um uk arms exports uh, according to one figure i read 14.5 billion pounds of of uk arms exports have been done since uh, the arab spring these regimes are notorious in their attitude towards the Muslim masses, and and many of them uh, do not accept dissent and do not take dissent very kindly. Uh, how do we square that circle? How do we place mm. King Charles as someone who has a a a a, a love for uh, for for study and and the study of Islam and Sufism, uh, but King Charles as a as a soft power actor on behalf of the British state.
2: By the way, I completely agree with your analysis of what's happened since the uh, Arab Spring. The Western, um, not just Britain, of course, the Western uh, alliances with a series of uh, dictators, repressing, generally speaking, um, legitimate uh, strands of political Islam, um, with the uh, aid and the by the British state. Catherine Mayer, in her autobiography of the prince published and i think then prince published in 2016 revealed that he was um refusing anymore to get involved in arms deals that's been confirmed also in uh, another authorized book by robert Jobson about the uh king uh published three years ago I, to, and this happened apparently reportedly in 2015 i, I have, by the way i'm relying on other sources um not me, I haven't, which was the eve of the criminal, I mean, the Saudi attack on Yemen and the and BAA systems, which is quoted in quite a lot of the articles against Charles. Um I, 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 And I think the British involvement in the Iraq, uh, sorry, in the Yemeni business is, is shocking and terrible, actually. Um And one of the worst episodes in our entire history i'm not defending his entire record i can see that he was used as an instrument of of soft power but i can also see that as a man of deep rather he does agonize about things it's very visible you can just see his face and you can see how much he does he um he he's obviously thought about it and thought that's wrong
3: but you know that was prince charles as a as a prince now he's uh the monarch his political opinions will be less uh, strident possibly. I mean, he, he effectively said that in, in his speech, and it is, uh, I think most commentators now suggest that um, he's going to be uh, less uh, animated about some of these causes. I wonder whether, mm-hmm. even if he does have a sympathy towards Islam, the constitutional monarchy means that he's really going to have to stay silent about what many would describe as, as, and what you would describe as an extremely problematic British state policy towards uh, the Arab and Muslim world.
2: Well, it's all just, um, if you just go through the things that Charles uh, believes in, which the current government doesn't, but he believes in the in, in the union of the nations. In practice, the government, the, the, Truss and Johnson uh, praised the union, but in practice, they were undermining it all the time with... Um, and then you look at the environment. I mean, the environment has been. Charles has been incredibly uh, far-sighted, and and, you know, and his record of campaigning on environmental issues and, and being public about it. And whereas, uh, Truss is the first thing she'd done is is reintroduce fracking, and the second thing she did was to give this huge lollipop to the energy companies, in, And and um, and so. Clearly, there's going to be a uh, and a, 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 going to be a major uh, kind of. He's going to disagree with the government on all sorts of different. And Islam again, you know, he's going to. Uh, we're going to see I, what, what looks to me like a series of coercive measures against Islam or Muslims. That is to say, in the next uh, few months, at some stage, and and, and there are other issues um, as well. I don't think. Charles will be a talking on uh, on the Rwanda plan. Now he does have, and he's been warned. And actually, the, the 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 monarchy in this country is not a democratic institution. He got he's he's inherited his post. He isn't uh, uh, um, he hasn't been elected to it. Uh, and so there's very little he uh, and probably nothing he can say publicly. He's entitled, um, according to the constitutional textbooks, think of Badgett privately to warn um and I'm sure as he did Prince Charles against the Iraq war report as one reads in the books um uh but he, uh, he not much more than that he could set a tone it'll be uh, Charles will have to learn how to uh, to stand up for these issues against um what I think is a nationalist uh, English government
3: I want to turn to one final question and 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 you've been very generous with your time peter and thank you for 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 uh, uh for for staying the course with with me um I want to I as a as a british muslim i've noticed that many uh, young muslims are now looking to move away from britain uh it's probably not as as um stark as as it is in europe in france there is an exodus of of north africans muslims who who feel persecuted by the state but there is a sizable minority let's say of, of young muslims who who wish to to live a life elsewhere whether it's in a another european state or or most more likely in in uh, a muslim uh, state i mean i've i've uh, i was in turkey for a number of months um last year and i found that uh, there were uh, uh there was a substantial trickle of of families who are now moving to istanbul from london and these are uh, second third generation muslims they're not they're not migrants uh, uh, but they've they've decided to uh to to start a new life in in istanbul i mean there's a question in there somewhere but what's your feeling about that i mean you know do you find that a justifiable move uh or response to what you've been writing about for the last two decades you know a A very a very uh, Mm. anti-Muslim environment.
2: Yeah, I I can certainly see why people Muslims are moving out of France. Moving out of Britain, uh, it really upsets me. By the way, I'm very interested, and I might write about it. Perhaps we should talk talk about this subject. Yeah, Um, please. I um you you can see the rash reason for it that Britain was, uh, and this is one of the things the Queen. Uh, personally represented a multicultural society we we celebrated multiculturalism that was the british settlement and what we have seen and brexit has been part of it is a move towards a um uh, a rejection of multiculturalism actually it was happening before brexit the yeah, david cameron speech
3: david cameron. yeah muscular liberalism yeah.
2: yeah and 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 he was captured really by the american think tanks i think that maybe you remember he he started off as Tory leader, going to live with a, a, a Muslim family um, and saying how much we had to learn from Islam. But then he he, 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 learnt, he seemed to change his mind. So uh, it, it really breaks my heart what you just told me. I, I didn't know that. Um, but you can see, I do think that the atmosphere towards Muslims, think of the Prevent strategy, has
3: changed. And i would say by the way prevent is is the one policy that has resonated in in the muslim community and mm-hmm. those people i spoke to in istanbul they they all cited prevent as as mm-hmm. one major reason why they just didn't feel comfortable um in, in britain and
2: i tell you what we must write as people i must write a piece about this yeah i think it's- so uh, we'll, we'll uh, when we um stay in touch on this please, yeah. uh, and let's uh let's uh, write a major piece uh the um but I hope, look, there's a, there's a struggle ahead. Um, this particular government has got at most, we well, has to call an election by January 2025 at the latest. A lot is going to happen before then, uh, and uh, I hope that Britain does not turn into a sort of um, a, a sort of uh, homogenous uh, ethnic state. Uh, uh, too fast and we have to start we must resist this and it is a major campaign i hope that labor can be convinced uh to uh, come out against the prevent strategy i haven't seen it doing so so far have you
3: no i haven't i mean if if anything angela rayner made that really horrible statement about shooting first and then asking questions later when it comes to terrorism or terrorist suspects um you know which, which really didn't play very well in the muslim community i mean i i don't know i mean maybe it's a cynic in me but the feeling after corbyn regardless of his politics and where he stands i mean the feeling after corbyn is that the labor party shares Mm. much of the uh the maybe not the virulent islamophobia but much of the uh, the tendencies of especially when it comes to securitization those policies of the Conservatives are shared probably by the, the current Labour Party.
2: Yeah, I, I, yeah the, the the defeat of Corbynism has got all kinds of consequences, uh, and it may just be a Starmer judges that, as he seeks to uh, get rid of this Conservative government, he's got to make certain compromises or or concessions to a right-wing opinion
3: yeah I mean that's a that's a worry I think for, for lots of Muslims and uh, maybe as a, as a final point I mean I think certainly writing about what I think is is a substantial move I mean I think it, it's really mainly amongst uh, younger Muslims who are now looking to move beyond uh, the UK and maybe that's just part of life and and they want to work elsewhere but but my my anecdotal discussions with them—they would cite policies like prevent and and sort of an agenda where uh, they feel the lives of of themselves and their kids—and they no longer feel comfortable um, in in you know even in in, in communities like Luton or Waltham Forest, where there are large numbers of Muslims, uh, there is a feeling that the the hand of the state uh, is on our shoulders.
2: It really, it's very upsetting and it's uh, uh, very profound what you're just saying. And um, let's hope we can change the atmosphere back.
3: Well, Peter Owen, thank you for your time today. It's really been a, a fascinating discussion and and quite a wide range in discussion. I really appreciate mm. your time with us
2: today. Thank you very much indeed. I really enjoyed talking to you. And let's talk again. And keep, remember to keep. Let's let let's talk again about and and write something about the about the way that Muslims. Of being driven out of Britain by the by prevent and other anti Muslim measures.